Hello, you are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We record the real-life memories and perspectives of those who experienced the history of Carnegie Mellon University. But today, we aren't going to talk about the past. Yeah, we're going to talk about the future. Often at the end of our oral history interviews, we ask participants to engage in a little bit of forecasting on the future of their fields. And one of the topics most frequently brought up is artificial intelligence. Yeah, given everything in the news lately, we thought it might be nice to put together a handful of thoughts about the future of artificial intelligence in this special episode that we're calling The Futures of AI. And we even have a guest writer with us to help us with scripting the episode. Want to introduce yourself? I am an AI language model developed by OpenAI, and my name is ChatGPT. Oh, hey ChatGPT. How are you? As an AI language model, I do not have feelings or emotions. I am programmed to assist and provide information to the best of my abilities. Fair enough. ChatGPT, we've been so busy conducting oral history interviews that we haven't written the script yet for this episode. Can you write one for us? Okay. Intro music host. Welcome to the future of AI. A podcast about exploring the possibilities and implications of artificial intelligence. I'm your host. Name. And today we're going to be speaking with individuals from different backgrounds about their perspectives on the future of AI. So far, so good. Segway music host. Our first guest is DR, Jane Smith, a computer science professor at XYZ University. Thank you for joining us today. Well, I, I guess I see where this is going. It's my pleasure. Maybe it's still quicker to write the script ourselves. Well, ChatGPT, maybe you could at least answer a question for us. What is AI? Artificial intelligence, AI, is a branch of computer science that deals with the creation of intelligent machines that can work and react like human beings. It involves developing algorithms and computer programs that can perform tasks that typically require human intelligence such as visual perception, speech recognition, decision-making, and language translation. The goal of AI research is to create systems that can intelligently process, understand, and generate information. There are various subfields of AI, including machine learning, natural language processing, computer vision, and robotics. AI has been rapidly advancing in recent years. However, there are also concerns about the potential impact of AI on society, including issues related to ethics, privacy, and employment. Yeah, ethics is a big point, and AI has been in the news a lot recently. Maybe our listeners saw the recent articles about Microsoft's Bing chatbot in the New York Times or Washington Post. Yeah, that took a little bit of a turn. <laughs> the information that it spits out isn't always completely accurate. But AI in the news is often pretty sensational. In our interviews, discussions about AI are pretty well grounded in the current day research at CMU and where researchers think we'll be in the next five or 10 or even 50 years. So where do you think we should start? Well, maybe we could start with Joseph Newcomer. 
Joe is a computer scientist who received his PhD from CMU. In his career, he has worked at CMU's Information Technology Center and within the School of Computer Science. He also worked at the CMU spin-out Tartan Laboratories, all before starting his own consulting company. Joe speaks to a few different ideas. The idea that computers are just machines. The idea that computer scientists often want to improve the world, or at least what they are currently working on. And the idea that there may be limits to what humans can teach artificial intelligence. So I think this is a nice way to ground our conversation on AI. To set the context, Joe's responding to my question about if computer scientists were idealistic about their work. I don't think we harbored any illusions. There's a wonderful proceedings I got. I found it in a used bookstore, paid all the dollar for it. It's the 1961 Fall Joint Computer Conference. This was the big conference. In fact, they had a spring joint and a fall joint. These were big deals. It's called, subtitled, Computers, the Key to System Integrity or something like that. In 1961, there were people who believed this. By the late 60s, if you were in CMU computer science, you knew the computers were just machines. They had limitations, most of which were annoying. They were too small, didn't have enough memory, didn't, weren't fast enough. And, you know, we, we kind of knew that we were making a difference in the world of computing, that we were making the world of computing a better place. We were developing languages, we were developing computers, we were developing algorithms, we were developing paradigms for software construction. All this stuff was good stuff. But I don't think we saw it as making the world some idealized place. It was just, hey, we can make, we can do this better. Let's see how we can do it better. Oh, thank you, Dr. So-and-so, for showing us how to do this better. So you, you got dissertations out of how to do it better. And that, that's a nice place to be because you're, you're making a positive contribution, you're, you're getting a better way to have a computer analyze a photograph, you're having a better way to do face recognition, you're getting a better way to do graphics, whatever it is, you are making it better. So there was definitely a, an ideal that we want to make the world a better place for computer people and for humans in general. But I don't think we ever saw it as, okay, robots are going to take over and we will all have leisurely lives and not have to work ever again. Uh, there are people who still think that's going to happen. I have to keep disabusing them of that model. Now, somebody asked the other day in one of the forums I'm in, would the world be better off if an AI were running it instead of a human? I said, absolutely not. How do you teach an AI ethics? How do you teach it mercy? How do you teach it justice? These are concepts that humans have because we have thought long and hard about them. You can't program a computer to do this. AI is just one instruction after another. Now, they're working on complex databases and they're doing complex things, things that might well be beyond the ability of a human to do because, among other things, the AI has complete knowledge of whatever it's looking at. Whereas if I focus my attention over here, I forget what I was looking at over there. And I have to go back and look at that again. 
But that's just a limitation of our short-term, mid-term, long-term type memories and how we move data from our perception into our brain. So through these incremental improvements, we start to see more and more advanced technologies. But that doesn't really mean computers will be replacing humans anytime soon. So next, let's hear from Tom Mitchell. Tom is the founder and former chair of the machine learning department at CMU. And his research has made major contributions to the fields of machine learning, artificial intelligence, and cognitive neuroscience. Yeah. And here Tom talks about the future of machine learning, comparing how machines learn versus how humans learn. First of all, I have to say I'm pleased that it got this far already. Uh, When I was working in this in the 1970s, I just thought, well, actually what I thought in the 1970s is eventually this is the, the right way to do computer science. That might have been a little overambitious, but I still kind of believe that. Uh, It's just that I thought eventually would be maybe a hundred years. And I thought, I don't care if it's commercially viable. I just think it's really interesting question to look at. That's what I thought then. So I'm really pleased that here 50 years later, uh, 45 years later, um, it's really made tremendous amount of progress and it It is commercially viable. It's one of the big drivers in the economy these days. But I think we're still at the beginning. And the reason I think that is if you want to know the future of machine learning, all you have to do is look at how humans learn and computers don't yet. So we learn in all kinds of ways. In fact, we just had a discussion about some of those ways. Computers learn in pretty much one way, statistically. You show them a lot of examples, and they're very good at finding the pattern if you give enough examples. Um, That's just one of the ways that people learn. People learn, as we discussed before, you learn when you're learning chess, you only let a knight fork happen once or twice, and you don't need a thousand examples of that. You explain it to yourself, you reason about it, and you, based on that reasoning, figure out that it didn't really matter where the pawn was over here. It only mattered that the knight was attacking your king and also your queen at the same time. So that's a very different kind of learning than computers do. They will, in the future, learn that way because it's a good idea in some settings. People learn from instruction. One of the current research directions my group is looking at is How should your phone learn to do new things? Uh, Right now, if you want to add some new function to your phone, like whenever the forecast calls for snow tonight, wake me up 30 minutes early so I don't get late to work. Suppose you want your phone to do that. The only way today to do that is to learn how to write computer programs and to program your phone to do that. But People learn from instruction. If I hired you as my assistant or you hired me and you wanted me to do it, you would say, well, Tom, use the AccuWeather app and right here where it says current conditions, if that says snow, that's how you know if it's snowing. And if you want to wake me up 30 minutes early because it does say snow, then open this alarm app and subtract 30 from this number right here and enter that. 
So you would teach me how to do it. You wouldn't make me statistically learn from a million experiments. How to, you would teach me. And that's in fact how we interact with our human assistants. If you have a administrative assistant, you don't wait for him or her to observe you passively for a thousand days and then guess how they're supposed to help you. You go into their office and you say, you know what, I'm teaching this course with Nina this semester and we need your help in the following ways. If we have a homework assignment that you see in the email that's being developed, but it's going to be released to the students in three days and we haven't pre-tested it yet, I want you to send an email to say, get this pre-tested. So it would take you a hundred years to statistically guess that that's what I, we just instruct. And so in the future, computers will learn statistically as they do today. They'll learn by reasoning, like the chess example. They'll learn from instruction. We'll say to our phone, if it snows at night, then set my alarm 30 minutes earlier. And the phone will say, I don't understand that. Do you want to teach me? And we'll say, yeah, here. Here's how you know if it's snowing at night. You open up this AccuWeather and right here on the screen where it says current conditions, do it. And if it does say snow, then close that app and go to the alarm app here and subtract three. We'll teach the phone the same way we would teach a person. And so I think the future of machine learning is bright because despite the huge commercial success that we already have and scientific success, We've just scratched the surface because we're all focused on this one type of learning, whereas obviously people learn from multiple mechanisms, including the ones that I mentioned, and from reading books, from watching YouTube videos. We learn it all. And, and there's no reason why computers in principle cannot learn in those ways. It's just that the field hasn't progressed enough to get us there. So I think it will progress enough to get us there. I don't know whether it'll be five years or 50 years. There's nothing in principle that's going to stop that. And so I think the future of machine learning is gonna be really, really interesting. And the further it goes forward, the more it will incorporate the different kinds of learning that people do, and the more it might start to teach us about learning in people. So it sounds like one possible future of AI is that AI will start to learn like humans learn. And because of that, I'll be able to teach AI to do more things for me. Hmm. Is there anything you'd like AI to be able to do? I suppose I'd like AI to change my car's oil, check the tire pressure, and accurately do my taxes. Mm, that's a good one. Yeah. So next up is Manuela Veloso. We interviewed Manuela back in 2021. And she received her PhD from CMU, was a professor and also a former head of the machine learning department, and now is the head of AI at JP Morgan. Towards the end of our interview with Manuela, she expands on additional future uses for AI, along with a short list of barriers for pursuing future AI research. Everybody talks about AI. So I believe AI will be, will be part of society much more. But you, the point is like this, what is this AI thing? AI is code. I mean, it's code. It's like having, so I keep saying AI is not this big. It's not theory per se. I mean, we can make a theoretical proof, but I mean, it's really about having things that run 
own machine. So it's not DNA, it's not the cat, it's not the dog, it's a computer. It's a computer. It's or maybe your cell phone is also a computer, but it doesn't matter. So there will be much more code running and the code will be more and more intelligent. So think about the chat bot, for example, right? So there is a, look at all these levels. There is a chat bot that may just say prescribed answers, okay. There's a chat bot that might personalize the parameters of the answers to yourself. And there is one day a chat bot that will come up with its own answers by itself. You know, so who knows how far we go. So as we speak, do you know that the, the autonomous cars came up with those levels, right? So level zero is no autonomy all the way to eventually level five. And they keep saying we are only in level three or we live in level four. That's how I see AI also in general. In general, AI is not something, it's a, a path, it's a road. It's where you are depends. I mean, you might be uh, very manual still, or for example, even the fact that you now, that we now digitalize photos is on the way to have an AI system that interprets them all. But so you need the, you need to build up, AI is something you build up. So here at JP Morgan, I keep saying, the first thing to do is get rid of paper. So I have um, on the no more faxes, no more paper, everything digital. So, and that's like a building block for eventually one day have something smart and intelligent about the information. So I see this as a AI is a path. Five years from now, we'll have more things intelligent. We have more intelligence in the sense that we will be able to, you know, as we speak, so many apps. I mean, we reserve, we reserve tables for a restaurant and maybe they will, so this is very beautiful. Maybe the, and which happens already in several of them, they will recommend a restaurant if the one we want is full. So that recommendation now is an AI system tracking everything and giving this. I mean, my dream would be like also several years from now, I don't know when, that you come to a computer or you have uh, messages by email or messages on your text, email in particular, and the machine replies to 90% of these emails and you only have to handle 10%. I mean, I don't see a future where people can uh, process by themselves so much information that comes to you. I, you know, on Sunday, uh, you know, I tend to follow one of my leaders in the firm who told once that he always answers all the emails every day. And I try hard, but it's sometimes it's not easy. But I come to Sunday and I feel like erasing everything. And if people are wanting to no more, they will send it again. Because otherwise it keeps growing and growing and growing and growing the things we have to address. I mean, it's crazy. So I need an AI system that will eventually do this AI assistance of, no, of how do you say, handling tasks. Task handling is something I think we, we, we need AI to help a lot. But I think it's going to be just growing the amount of computer intelligence that will be everywhere, everywhere. Yeah, there are barriers. Uh, it's not easy to have uh, computers and intelligence in machines be with all the values that people have. You know, there is dangers of bias, dangers of fairness. Uh, but again, I think that um, 
the social responsibility of, and the intellectual responsibility of people who know AI is really to work with these uh, uh, social scientists, philosophers, people that know about society and work closely so that eventually uh, there is some help in trying to uh, have the AI systems do the right thing. But again, I don't think that um, uh, it should stop us from advance the field of AI. Because as I told you, my approach to the field of AI is that in fact, you should make AI that improves over time. So if it doesn't do the right decision now, what matters is that you have a mechanism for the humans to say, you should have given the loan to this, uh, this customer. And the machine, oh yeah, is able to be retrained on those feedback and next time it does a better decision or it, it recommends a better decision. So what I find that people are lacking when they talk about the barriers and the, the dangers of AI, I think the dangers of AI are if we believe that what is now is the right thing. So if the algorithms are not built to improve over time, then that's bad because how would we know everything now and how can we, you know, block or come up and buy something, some AI system that tells you like what to do in terms of big decisions in life. And it has all the knowledge now. And if I want to undo, or if I want to give another feedback, then the machine doesn't. That's for me the biggest barriers is people that don't look at AI as a moving target as something that can get feedback, as something that can improve over time. I find that's the hardest part is when people get so attached to what it does now. So I don't want to be dismissive of problems that AI has advice, but I'm more worried about what if I cannot correct them? I mean, it's not the worry that it makes the wrong decision, it's the worry that I will not be able to correct the thing. I mean, this is horrible. Because now, wow. So then I have to live with that error for eternity? That's not good. That's the problem that I have. So I'm trying always to see, are these really learning machines? They were trained, whatever, but can I give them feedback? Can I say, don't do that? If there are many barriers in terms of actually, you have to understand that this is computing. You have to get great computers, great handling of large amounts of data, the hardware itself, the GPUs, all these things, they are, they are constraints in terms of the money, the how much it costs to build the data center of the size we need, how much it costs to have the actual computer. So there are all these, I would say, practical constraints. Who is going to have access to all that hardware to run all these computers? I mean and all these uh, code. So there are those. And then there is also a barrier that you have to understand, which is culture. Even at JP Morgan, the culture is things work well like they are. I mean, why should we abolish manual processes? Then, then the, the leadership and people say, we have to do this to keep in the business. Otherwise someone will do it instead of us. But so there's a driving force, but it's not really, it's like you and I, do we really think that we need robots for what? I mean, okay, well, I can, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like weird to think, do I really need autonomous driving? Well, I can drive. I mean, so it seems that we don't really need any of these things. And so the, the, I think that's a barrier because we know we need to 
uh, have empathy. We know we need to be kind. We know we need to read. We know we need to write. We know we need all these things, but I don't think we know we need AI. Or I don't think so. I don't think that the whole world is eager to have AI. I mean, they get it as it goes, but they don't make it like everybody needs to read. I mean, that we know we need. So that's a barrier, culture. The other barrier is hardware. And the other barrier is people thinking that AI is the one-shot thing that makes a lot of errors. And that's how it is. And another barrier, though, also maybe this is because somehow AI needs to be teams, like I mentioned, very diverse in all dimensions, ethnic, cultural, expertise, you know, it cannot be something that's pushed forward just by the engineers. It's fine. The engineers are needed. I will always be an engineer, but I hope that other people tell me and guide me and help me and, and are critical and are part of this the revolution. And we, to tell you frankly, we scientists are not very good team players. I mean, no known, currently there are Nobel Prizes that are maybe a team of two, but you know that science has been an Einstein, a single person. There's never been because you work together, a social scientist and an engineer, and you did this big discovery. It's very egocentric. And AI is not an egocentric kind of discipline. Very good. So AI has some challenges, and there are dangers ahead if we don't address them. And as Manuela says, it's going to take people from many different fields and backgrounds to make things equitable. Yeah, not to get all philosophical, but it sounds like AI is a process, not really a destination. Next up is Jose Mora. We interviewed Jose in 2021, and he's the Philip L. and Marsha Dowd University Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at CMU. Jose takes a slightly more geopolitical approach in speaking to the United States' role in the future of AI. Engineering AI, the deployment of AI systems in the real world in many broad applications, just like the iPhone works anywhere, everywhere, and anytime, three o'clock in the morning, you pick up your phone because you are insomniac or something, and you call and or you read the paper, the phone works, and you travel, and the same phone works. So the, the systems, the AI systems that can be deployed and have the same reliability, the same accuracy, always producing the same answer, uh, meaning not always the same answer, but adaptively addressed, I say, sophisticated way, but providing you with the help that you need, it's still not here. And so I think that if I look into the future, the big thing is going to be how you deploy these systems. How do you engineering the AI systems of the future? And that is going to have a big increment because of the competition between Europe, US, China. Okay, these three poles, they all realize that what the US dominated 
the 50 years from the end of the war till the 2000s, okay? The technology world, uh, think of the, from the Intels, the chip designers, computer architects, all that, the IBMs and so forth, to the Googles, to the Facebooks, to the social networks, everything that happened in the last 50 years of the 20th century, and maybe the first 10 years or five years, okay? Everything the US is dominant. But look at the last 10 years or last 15 years, China became dominant also. And you can't say, oh, they, they copied the US. That might be true, but it won't be true tomorrow. And uh, you could say, oh, why don't you just close the borders, close the technology, the Googles of the world will make it so opaque that nobody can copy. Yeah, but where are the chips produced? All in China, okay? Even if the designs are in the US, where are they manufactured? All in China. And uh, you could go through a lot of the critical industries and you'd find that it's Taiwan, China, uh, Korea, and so it's not like you can keep it in sight. For the US, that's the challenge. For the world and for people like you and me, it's more like science and technology advanced because of competition. I think that because of the big competition between these three poles and the US is going to win, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that in the long run, US will win again. And win means success, technological big leapfrogs, but it's going to focus on systems that function in the real world, like an airplane that lands on its own. Radars, radars work so well, okay? Radio works so well. Just like these things work, you are going to have systems that are deployed beyond the physical systems. It's not just the CAT scanners in hospitals looking, poking inside your body. It's going to be what we associate with intelligence, really. But it's not playing, playing chess or playing uh, uh, Go. Uh, it's not just looking at an image and say, this is a cat and that's a dog. It's going to be systems that can talk with you uh, in an interactive way, can uh, just like you and me are talking and we are guessing what's the next thing that one should talk about based on our previous conversation. So that level of interactivity, that level of intelligence is not there, but it will be what will be in the next 10 or 15 years. So it's interesting to consider AI from a political and global perspective. Especially this idea that AI is not just an intelligence on a screen or a voice coming out of your computer speakers, but it is literally built upon minerals extracted from the ground. And that places AI in a conversation with other things, like oil and natural gas. These other things that exist in our Earth and that exert influence on governments and the people they govern. Yeah, it's not just about what everyday problems AI can help us solve. Part of the conversation is also the direct and indirect impacts it has on our world and our environment. And those direct and indirect impacts can sneak up on you too. Take something like music something most of us think about as a human pursuit. But it seems like these days there's a potential new bandmate, AI. 
Yeah. In 2022, we interviewed computer scientist and composer Roger Dannenberg. Roger and I were talking about how in order for AI to create music, it often needs to figure out where the beat is. So once it knows that, then AI can play chords, develop melodies, and make a song. So beat detection, as it's called, is progressing. But there are other factors impacting the ability for AI to create music. Another problem is I believe that there's something going on in music listening and perception that, uh, and, and music composition that's all about creating expectation and creating surprise. That's really critical to composition, but we do it so intuitively. We don't really have good models for understanding how that works. You know, if computers are going to be creative in the field of, of music and actually write pieces or even improvise or even, you know, like I said earlier, join, uh, join a band and, and play a chorus of Latin percussion. You know, if you don't understand how music is structured and, and uh, you know, I'll go back to Roger Humphreys always said playing a solo is like telling a story. And, you know, he understood that it's not playing arpeggios up and down and within the chord, and it's not playing really fast, it's, it's, it's developing and uh, creating anticipation, where is this gonna go? And then, you know, maybe arriving at a, at a certain note and everybody goes, oh yeah, you know, we're not really close to that at all <laughs> in, in research. You know, we have a long way to go, but I don't think that that's impossible to, to accomplish. So, you know, there's stuff to keep us all busy for a long time. Is it a desire to have AI play music? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that mankind has always been fascinated with automation. And uh, you can go back to uh, Greeks with, you know, mechanical devices and, you know, understanding the world through mathematical models. You know, and this goes on to, you know, more recent cultures with uh, fascination with, with robots and mechanical people and, you know, the mechanical Turk, which was this sort of chess playing thing that probably had a man inside. But, but you know, just the imagination that, that this mechanism could play chess, you know, is a great, a great story and, and, you know, something that's, that's resonated through, through history. And so I don't really understand why, but I think that's just a human imperative. So, you know, when you say, should they play, should AI, you know, compose great music? I I think the general understanding is yes, but, you know, maybe it won't when it happens. It's not necessarily going to be a good thing, but but I think people are driven to to make it happen. And, And there's a lot of interest that, you know, just popular interest in, in like computers doing songwriting and computers making artificial voices. Um, you know, there's a, there's a pop star in Japan, which is really a piece of software that, that synthesizes uh, singing voice and people go to concerts to, to hear. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, we're, we're driven to do that, whether it's a good thing or not, whether we like it or not. So I think that's what, what drives a lot of us. So Roger brings up a fascinating question. Should we use AI to do something that humans can arguably do better, like play a solo or keep a beat? Yeah, everybody's circumstances are different. 
Something might be a problem for one person, but not another. I mean, when I was younger, it was sometimes hard to get a band together, especially without a car or a practice space. My solution was to get a four-track tape recorder, learn a bunch of instruments, and fake like I had a band. But another solution would be to ask an AI to play the drum and horn parts, and I could play the rest. I mean, throw in an AI manager who skims money off the top, and that's the plot to my new sci-fi novel. <laughs> I mean, you joke, but there's some interesting overlap between sci-fi and AI research. Oh yeah. In 2022, when I interviewed James Morris, former dean of the Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science, and former dean and co-founder of Carnegie Mellon Silicon Valley Campus, we talked about the overlap of computer science and science fiction. The conversation grew out of a discussion about computer scientist Hans Moravec and his book, Mind Children. To go back to Hans Moravec, in the 80s, in the late 80s, he wrote a book called Mind Children, saying in a very matter-of-fact way, yes, by 2040 or 2050 at the latest, uh, robots will be smarter than people. They'll be smarter than all the humans put together. And he said, and that's a good thing because these things are our mind children. And I was so offended by this in 1988 that I didn't complain to anybody about it, but I said, this, I'm on the same computer science faculty with this total madman. But now in 2004, 2005, Ray Kurzweil and Max Tegmark and the people who are the gurus of the future of artificial intelligence are repeating exactly the things Moravec said, so, and, and in Kurzweil's case, not even mentioning that he got all, the, all these ideas were Moravec's long ago. So I've tracked down Moravec, and it's just that I meet with him once every couple of years to, to, to ask him if he has any more insights. He says no. <laughs> but he, he's like a total genius and has prescient understanding of the future of, or he has a theory. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen. I mean, the thing that makes life so exciting right now for everybody is we're in a huge turning point. All sorts of shit is happening. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's called the, Kurzweil calls it the singularity. That, oh yeah, in 2050, not only are computers going to be smarter than people, but people are going to start living forever because of the advances in um, bio whatever. We're all going to have our brains translated. So it's a fascinating time to be alive. And furthermore, since I'm old enough, I'm not going to have to deal with any of the consequences from all the stuff that's happening. But, so it is both frightening and exciting. And the future of AI, if climate change, the point is it's sort of a foot race here between can we get the robots working well enough to take, I mean, more of X plan is that the, the robots are going to explore outer space not just the solar system, but the whole frigging universe. And, and they're gonna control the universe. And there's another crazy physicist named David Deutsch that I mentioned in my book, who believes that, that, that this for, force of intelligence in the form of a global intergalactic internet will be controlling the, the fate of the universe. It's, it's crazy stuff. By the way, intergalactic internet was a term coined by J.C.R. Linklater. When, when he was just thinking of a computer network someday. So the amazing thing to me is how, so many of the ideas which you see manifested today were germinated uh, so long ago by people who were both science fiction writers and just, just the average guys thinking about the future. Yeah. 
always find it fascinating, the overlap of science and science fiction. Hmm. My theory is the science fiction writers, they set the agenda. Next stop is usually the media lab at MIT. Cause so they do a, think a lot of crazy stuff up and they sort of do these demos which can never be reproduced and then they, then they drop it. Then a bunch of drones here at Carnegie Mellon actually do all the work to make it work. There's sort of a pecking order. But the science fiction writers are the uh, initiators. Because, you know, I th I'm sure when John Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon, he was thinking about Jules Verne. This does feel like a big moment of transition and development for technology. Many of the ideas we once thought of as sci-fi or fiction are now becoming real. Yeah, a lot of sci-fi reflects the dominant social norms of the time, though. I mean, I love all the reality-bending plotlines of Philip K. Dick, but those books can be hard to read. Uh, they're more than a little misogynistic. Yeah, and for some folks, they actually hoped AI would help to solve these big systemic social problems and make things more equitable. They were optimistic. AI could solve anything. So back in 2019, I interviewed Pamela McCordick, author of the book Machines Who Think, a personal inquiry into the history and prospects of artificial intelligence. She wrote the book back in the late 1970s. Pamela spent many years investigating AI when it was brand new, talking with many of the people who were doing cutting-edge AI research in the 1970s. So you may have heard her tell this story in season two of this podcast, but it's worth hearing again. One night, I was sitting with Harold Cohen, the painter, and we had had a glass of wine or two. And he said, Pamela, why were you drawn to artificial intelligence? And I gave him the usual, you know, the most interesting people I know were doing it, uh, which was true. And my smartest people I knew were doing it. Uh, what an exceptional thing it is going to be if it works, and we think it's going, it feels a lot more like it's going to work now than it did 20 years ago. And then something popped out of me which was totally unconscious, and that was, and I think it will put an end to the masculine hegemony in intelligence generally. I thought, did that come out of my mouth? Yeah, it did. And yeah, it was true. And oh, I was wrong. But I didn't know that at the time because we still had hopes that this, the machine would somehow be disinterested in a way that humans are, are not disinterested. Um, and that is my great disappointment with AI right now, that it isn't making a more even playing field. So the main point is that AI reflects us, the humans who create it. It's not separate from our world, but rather a part of it. And as we develop this technology, it's going to impact us in ways we can't always predict. And it's going to take a lot of people from many different backgrounds to grow it responsibly. Yeah, it seems like AI is not a solution, but more of a tool we can use to make improvements. It's an incremental learning process. Let's close this special episode with Alex Weibel, who's a professor of computer science and an entrepreneur. We interviewed him back in 2021. 
His work in speech recognition, translation, and human communication systems have led to new technologies, and he founded a number of important companies and teams, including what's now the Language Technology Group at Facebook. Alex speaks to the idea of lifelong learning, and also some of the innovations he's working on in Germany. Looking in the further distant future, one of my dreams more generally for AI you know, is AI done? Absolutely not. I think AI in some sense is currently in a, at a status where we're still doing two things in a batch mode where we uh, build an AI system by training in a lot of data. It still requires a lot of um, engineering and tuning by the scientists who built them, but it by no means has the ease by which children learn uh, to operate in the world by gradually, incrementally, and interactively adding knowledge to what they what they can do. And that is important for us in language in particular. You know, children start with simple vocabularies and few words and gradually build up a vocabulary and the concept of the world. How do we do this? We, we And we never send in our brains for retraining to, to Google or to somebody. We just keep on going. And so this whole direction in AI... Uh, 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 you know, Tom Mitchell is a wonderful colleague with whom I enjoy most wonderful uh, discussions on this topic also because uh, he has done a lot of pioneering work on uh, on lifelong learning, which to me is, is again, uh, one of those important things, just like in the old days where I was looking at this and saying, you know, we will never succeed until we have machine learning. Now I'm staying there says this will never really work properly until unless we we crack this problem of lifelong learning because lifelong learning is tricky. You get new uh, facts that come in. You don't want to destroy your existing brain with all that it has learned, but you want to add these new facts to what is in your brain and do this in a neural architecture where you're gradually adding things uh, to your repertoire and sometimes revising things to your repertoire and sometimes synchronizing or consolidating it with your repertoire. And again, we do this all with such surprising ease and across many modalities with touch and vision and speech and so forth. And to put this all together in a package that can operate in the world and incrementally learn just like we, we do as humans is still beyond what, what we can do today. We do have a large new fundamental research program currently in Germany going on, which we call organic machine learning. And it's trying to address this, you know, how to build AI that are incremental, interactive, heterogeneous data systems that forget stuff that's not important and add stuff that is important and consolidate that as we go. Because dealing with surprise or dealing with the unknown is ultimately almost the definition of intelligence. You know, when something uh, new comes around, we have mechanisms to cope with this to, to an extent. Machines don't. We have to currently still retrain them and rebuild them and have the engineering team that does that. And I think that's going to be the next frontier in my view. And I think there's uh, fascinating work that's going on in that direction. It sounds like AI is still learning, and so are we. Yeah, we really don't know what the future holds, but it definitely feels like we're in a moment of development. And those developments are happening faster than ever. Yeah, and these futures are just a few of the many, many possibilities. 
It'll be interesting to look at these predictions 10 years from now or 50 years from now and see how things have developed. And we'll continue to collect these forecasts through our oral history interviews. So if you're an AI researcher or a student and you want to share your own prediction, feel free to get in touch. You know, there's one guest on this episode we haven't heard from on the future of AI. ChatGPT, what does the future of AI look like? The future of AI holds great potential for transforming industries and solving complex problems. With advancements in technology and increasing amounts of data enabling AI to continue to improve and evolve in the coming years, we can expect more sophisticated algorithms and models, development of intelligent robots and systems, and increased use of AI in fields such as healthcare. There will also be a need for ethical and regulatory frameworks to ensure responsible development and use of AI. This episode was written by Catherine and Dave and ChatGPT and Dave made all the music. The Oral History Program is funded by the Weibel Foundation and other generous donors. If you want to help us continue preserving stories like this, consider making a donation to the Oral History Program at library.cmu.edu slash orohistory. Also, hit subscribe so you can be alerted to new episodes. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. Let us know what you think. See you next time.